Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. One of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As die-hard conservative. to this guy for wisdom. Holy moly, did everyone did everyone catch that trucker convoy in Los Angeles this weekend at the Super Bowl? Did you get a load of those truckers starting their protest? You didn't? You didn't see it? Well, that's not what DHS was warning. DHS told us, oh, well, you better get ready and please increase that police presence because, you know, we've got word on the street. Our intel's telling us these truckers, these dangerous terrorist truckers, they could begin their long journey from L.A. to Washington, D.C. as early as this weekend. Look out for them at the Super Bowl. Yeah, I missed that, too. It didn't happen. But you know what I did see? I saw 70,000 people in a crowd in Los Angeles. Most of them not wearing masks. And you know who especially I noticed wasn't wearing masks? The same individuals, the same elites in our society, both politicians and celebrities, who took to their social media platforms throughout this pandemic, saying things like, don't be an ass, and a picture of a mask on her face. That's... Charlize Theron, by the way, she had tweeted that out at some point or put it on her social media. Well, she was there, Charlize, that is. She was there smiling, happy, joyous, and maskless. Eric Garcetti, remember him? He was just recently photographed at the last game in Los Angeles, football game, that is, at SoFi Stadium. Well, he didn't have a mask on for a photo with Magic Johnson. And he said, well, uh, I was holding my breath. Well, He didn't have a mask on his face for the entirety of the Super Bowl. That guy just set a Guinness World Record. I mean, he held his breath for over three hours, Eric Garcetti. I can't wait to hear hear him tell us how he managed that. Who else did I say? Sean Penn, no mask. Ryan Reynolds, no mask. Magic Johnson was there, of course, again, no mask. Uh, The list goes on. Individual after individual after individual without a mask on their face. But you know what was enraging about it, of course? All of these adults who condemn everyone and preach the gospel of maskism to everyone, they don't wear it themselves, but these same individuals are demanding that our children wear masks in schools. I really, I, I, I got to tell I did not watch the Super Bowl. I wasn't trying to be some grumpy old man. That wasn't, wasn't the point. I just, I really was disinterested. It was, it was happening in L.A. I'm not an L.A. guy, by the way. I, I lived in L.A. a long time. I'm not an L.A. fan. I grew up in Dallas, uh, you know, so I, I don't have any skin in the game out here in terms of L.A. And the story I'm about to talk about and get into was just weighing so heavy on my mind today that I, I, I mean, I was, I was pretty irritated today. I got to admit, I was. And I'll explain myself here in just a moment. And of course, it has to do with the lack of accountability in our government, the fact that criminals are ruling over us. Hillary Clinton, that's what I'm going to talk about in a minute. 
But I, uh, I I wanted the Bengals to win. I did. I did. Uh, I like Joe Burrow. I liked watching him uh, his senior year of college. And I, I just think that was a tremendous success story. And, and I don't... I guess the fact that this L.A. Uh, this the L.A. Rams were hosting the Super Bowl here in L.A. and I just have so many problems with L.A. And, and, and you know the truth is today, how how can anyone really separate politics from anything else? Politics has infiltrated anything, and it's been going that way for a long time in sports, especially with the NFL. Whether you want to start with Colin Kaepernick and all of that, Eminem, of course, the halftime show he. He took a knee in solidarity with Colin Kay, which proves that this has nothing to do with racism or BLM or anything like that. Injustice. It's just, uh, you know, Eminem was kneeling to his new god, I guess, Colin Kaepernick. Maybe he'll rap about it soon. I don't know. I understand. Apparently, it was a pretty good halftime show. I I don't know. I didn't watch it. Uh, But I was fixated on those individuals going maskless in the audience. Now, I wondered, of course, like a lot of you, I talked about it last time. I kind of wondered to myself, how are they going to enforce this? Will they enforce it? And they didn't. They didn't. You know, there were plenty of um, officials out there from the L.A. government, the California government, watching this game, too. And, you know, the way they condemn and talk down to Americans, citizens in California, about doing their patriotic duty of masking up, even though masks don't work, well, you'd think they would have... I mean, you would think that the amount of conviction they show to condemn all of us and preach to us that they would have maybe said something to somebody around them that wasn't wearing a mask at the Super Bowl. You would expect that, wouldn't you? I mean, they can get on TV. They can take to their Twitter accounts. They can do their interviews. They can do their uh, interviews in the, the editorials. That'd be newspaper, the written medium I'm talking about. And they can just preach it, baby, preach it about the need to wear a mask and be responsible. But then, when they're at the Super Bowl and nobody's wearing masks, they don't care. They don't even wear them themselves. I'm just so tired of it. It's so clear. We need a peaceful rebellion here in California. And you know why they couldn't enforce the mask policy in L.A., right? Power in numbers. Power in numbers, just like the truckers in Canada. Power in numbers. When you got 70,000 people not wearing masks in a stadium, at a football game, on live TV. Well, they don't have any enforcement mechanism. They don't have any power. That's one of the political takeaways, I I suppose, from this. They couldn't do anything about it. They didn't dare do anything about it because they couldn't. And the whole thing was proven a sham again by the fact that these people weren't wearing masks. All those celebrities I just went through the list of. Those same people who tell us to wear masks. Eric Garcetti again. Incredible. But I want to get into this Hillary Clinton scandal. Now, William Barr, people were very concerned about how dedicated he was to getting to the bottom of the Democrats' role in the Trump-Russia collusion hoax. And he appointed, at the end of his tenure there under the Trump administration, John Durham as special counsel. And I speculated back then, and many of us did, well, we were hopeful. 
because the way it was set up, it was basically impossible, virtually impossible for the Biden administration to come in and interfere with that, to intervene, to fire John Durham. And so basically, just like Mueller was given, open season there to conduct his investigation, John Durham was basically given the same thing. And John Durham just released a bombshell report. A bombshell report. Which is what? The Clinton campaign spied on Trump both before he was president and after. Now, remember when uh, Donald Trump, by the way, he made, I don't know if it was 2017, 2018, I think 2017, and he said his uh, wires were tapped. And the, and the media, of course, the fan- fanatics and propagandists they were, oh, they condescended to him. They, they told him how ridiculous it was, said he couldn't provide any evidence of this. This is just conspiracy theory. And of course, Trump was proven right again. I don't know how many more times Trump can be proven right. He's been proven right every time. And by the way, the Democrats look more and more like clowns every day. And I keep asking myself, at, one, at what point will Democrat voters get savvy to the fact that they've been lied to by Democrats and the media for six years straight almost? When will it begin to bother them? Part of the problem, of course, is you've got a few problems. You know what's going on? Well, CNN and the sources that a lot of Democrats depend upon for their news or propaganda, well, those places, if they go to them, aren't going to report this to begin with. That's one of the problems. So they're never going to hear about it. I was talking to people today in California where I live, and I asked them if, they, if they'd heard anything about this, and they had no clue. They had not heard a word, and honestly, they didn't even know much about Trump-Russia collusion. This is the thing. The Democrats depend upon a voter base that is totally ignorant, totally in the dark. Now, some of them are just radical lunatics. But there are a whole lot of people out there that just, maybe they're not interested in politics. Or even those that are slightly interested. They don't hear about this stuff. Because of the media they consume. And that's again to the point of why Joe Rogan is getting, is so big and has a big following. And why alternate media sources, well, the viewership, the listenership, the audiences are so much bigger than those in the mainstream media because they can't rely on them anymore. They can't depend upon them anymore. And so they have to go elsewhere if they want to learn anything. But I want to get into this. I'm going to get into a lot of depth here. We got to get into the history and go back into the emails of Hillary Clinton. We've got to go back in history and look at what happened in 2016, the origin story of this, why I think this happened as well, because it's becoming more clear with these revelations. But the simple fact is that the Clinton campaign engaged in a criminal conspiracy, hiring uh, a tech executive to task researchers with mining internet data even enlisting researchers at a U.S. university, okay, to dig up Trump-Russia connections. But it's worse than that because they didn't just 
pay for uh, a steel dossier. dossier. Uh, they, they planted evidence. And people are saying what? This is so much worse than Watergate. And it is. And part of the problem, we don't have a reaction like we used to to this. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, we all kind of just accept this because we feel powerless. We feel like there's nothing that's ever going to happen because there hasn't been any repercussions for any of this happening. Um, this operation started in July of 2016. That is before the election. And this goes back to the WikiLeaks leak of the DNC emails, the John Podesta emails. Um, remember, in 2016, it was uh, April, actually, when the Democrat Party, the Democrat National Committee, learned that their servers had been hacked. And it's just, it just so happened that it was also in April of 2016 that Fusion GPS was hired by the Perkins Coy uh, law firm, okay? That is, the, that is the law firm that the Hillary Clinton campaign paid. And they were the individuals, those lawyers there, which is a guy named Michael Sussman and Mark Elias. All right, so they funneled money to Perkins Coy, and through those lawyers, they then funneled money elsewhere. Fusion GPS is the one that paid Christopher Steele to develop, invent, the fake Steele dossier that was used as the basis of investigating Donald Trump for Trump-Russia collusion. And this may have been, the breaking news today, is that this may have been the first shot fired. So Michael Sussman, okay, he works for Perkins Coy. So the Hillary Clinton campaign, they approach him, and they have him hire a tech executive to basically spy on the internet traffic going through uh, at Trump Tower, and then later they continued at the White House itself. So Michael Sussman, he's on the payroll of the uh, Clinton campaign, right? Uh, they're depositing money in their bank accounts, his bank accounts, and he goes to this tech executive, and he says essentially, hey, I want you to uh, hack into the servers at Trump Tower, for example, or other uh, Trump locations, and I want you to find uh, basically uh, Trump-Russia collusion. So this guy, the tech executive... He uh, employs a bunch of computer scientists, hackers, and he says, hey, uh, I want to find evidence of uh, Trump-Russia collusion, any kind of uh, communication between Trump and Russia. And so uh, this executive finds it. So these computer scientists, well, they uncovered this covert server that was linking the Trump organization to a Russia-based bank. They found what they were looking for. The bank was called Alpha Bank. So the bank's called Alpha Bank, right? And one of these computer scientists, allegedly, who referred to himself as Tea Leaves, this pseudonym, uh, well, he found what looked like malware emanating from Russia. And the destination domain had Trump in its name. This apparently attracted Tea Leaves' attention. 
But this discovery, it was just pure happenstance, right? And Sussman, he has all of this information gathered that is alleging that he has seen these pings of communications between the Alpha Bank, this financial institution in Russia, and Trump, his Trump servers, and he just goes to the FBI and he says, hey, I'm just here as a good citizen, uh, and I just wanted to let you know that I just, I have all this information. Nobody paid me for this. I'm not working for anybody, by the way. I just happen to have a stack of stuff here in my free time as a lawyer that seems to demonstrate that the Trump administration has some financial ties with Alpha Bank. Now, Sussman's already been indicted, by the way, uh, by a grand jury because he lied to the FBI because it turned out that Sussman was working on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is the FBI already investigated the Alpha Bank server and con concluded in February of 2017 that no communication link existed, in fact. So it turns out more than likely... Because, look, Alpha Bank is actually suing, uh, they say John Doe is the defendant, and they are saying they, Alpha Bank, was the victim of hackers. And these hackers sent a fabricated domain name system, a DNS, these digital cues, to the Trump domain, mail.trump-email.com, to make it look like they were communicating with Alpha servers. This is the lawsuit from Alpha Bank, a defamation suit. Here's the indictment. It says, in the course of these efforts, Tech Executive One also exploited his own company's access to the sensitive internet data of a high-ranking executive branch office of the U.S. government, both before and after the presidential election. That's the indictment from John Durham. And Sussman, of course, he went to the FBI and lied to them and said he wasn't working for the Clinton campaign. That's why he got in trouble. He lied to the FBI. But he told them that in July before Slate broke the story. And the headline said, was a Trump server communicating with Russia? There you go. Collusion with the media and everything else. And so that story, what we we're just talking about, in the, in the Slate story, it claimed that a group of these computer scientists, like tea leaves, for example, well, they had sought to determine whether hackers uh, were interfering with the Trump campaign and unexpectedly found evidence of communication between Trump and Alpha Bank. And then Hillary Clinton, three hours after this Slate story was published, then tweeted out, Computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russia-based bank. And this was the, the premise, the beginning of the Steele dossier. So it all goes back to that. So she paid, her campaign paid a tech executive to illegally spy on the Trump campaign. Are you understanding that? This is Watergate times a million. But why would she do this? Now, remember 2016 in the thick of it, the big controversy, there were a couple. One, of course, was that Hillary Clinton was in a lot of trouble, a lot of heat because of her email server. Remember, she set up that private email server at her home in Chappaqua, New York. And she used, uh, while she was Secretary of State, she used her own private email 
hdr22 at clintonemail.com, I believe it was. And she, of course, said that, well, she just set it up out of convenience. But she didn't set it up out of convenience. That was a bold-faced lie. She set up a private server because she didn't want the government having access to those things she didn't want them to see. And that has more to do with the Clinton Foundation because we know, like Joe Biden, who has sold our country out to make money and earn an income from China, well, she did the same thing for access. The Clinton Foundation was set up for foreign governments and entities who looked to uh, influence policy and everything else in America. They would funnel money to this nonprofit organization, the Clinton Foundation Global Initiative or whatever it was called, in order to buy influence and curry favor from Hillary Clinton herself, anticipating, of course, that she was going to be the president of the United States. And we know, of course, that those donations dried up when she didn't win. But she broke all kinds of federal laws. She sent all these emails on a private server that not only had national security implications because it could be hacked, but also because she was supposed to preserve all of those emails, even if she did use a private server and turn those over to the government. She didn't. She used the bleach bit technology so that nobody could ever read those emails. They would be destroyed. They could not be uh, uh, put back together or brought back from the dead. They were wiped off the face of the earth with bleach bit. Uh, some of her, her people in her campaign around her. They used hammers to destroy her blackberries. She had as many as 11, 12, or 13 blackberries uh, over the course of this time. And she only escaped repercussions because of James Comey, who said that she didn't intend. Intention was the problem, right? If she didn't intend to do something wrong, then they couldn't find her guilty of anything. So that's going on, right? And that's looking really bad for her. And on top of that, you had earlier, back in April, the, D the DNC, the Democrat National Committee, discovered that, well, they had been hacked, apparently. And they said the Russians did it. The Russians did it. Do you remember Seth Rich? Does that name ring a bell to anybody, Seth Rich? That's the 27-year-old uh, DNC staffer who was uh, found murdered on July 10th of 2016. So yeah, Seth Rich. So so he's the guy that he's on the phone with his girlfriend, right? He's it's 4 a.m. He's headed home from his favorite DC bar. He tells his girlfriend he has to go, and then moments later, seconds later, he's shot dead twice in the back, a block from his apartment. And police called it a robbery gone wrong. But what was odd about the Seth Rich murder? He had his wallet on him, his watch on him, and his phone on him. They didn't steal anything. Some kind of robbery, huh? He was murdered in cold blood, and by the way, his murderer has never been found. Now, Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks guy, who was putting out the Podesta emails, suggested that perhaps Seth Rich was murdered because he was actually the insider who was, who was giving the information to him. It wasn't the Russians. And you know what's even weirder about this? The DNC would not allow the FBI to examine its computers. That's right, they outsourced the research of what happened that said the Russians were behind this. They, they outsourced it to an organization called CrowdStrike. But the DNC would not allow the FBI to examine it, it themselves. Isn't that suspicious? 
And even Mueller, this is what a lot of Democrats say, by the way. They say, well, it was definitely the Russians. Mueller, Mueller proved it, but Mueller didn't prove anything. He just said what they always say. Well, you know, the intelligence community agrees that uh, it, was, it was Russia, so I'm going to take their word for it. And yet the FBI never got their hands on those computers, never got to examine it. And a lot of people have said, too, that are in that uh, hacking or computer science world, that the download speed... Uh, the way it came out was 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 too fast, too fast to have been a hack job. It had to have been an inside job that they were released. So Seth Rich, and you know what? They were so terrified of this Seth Rich, they called it a conspiracy theory, that he was the guy or his brother was the guy behind leaking out this information. And remember that Podesta emails were damning because they proved that the whole Democrat National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign, well, they were colluding against Bernie Sanders to prevent him from getting the nomination to ensure that Hillary Clinton got the nomination to be their presidential candidate. And so all this is going on, and so they blame the Russians. It's all the Russians' fault. So they have demonized the Russians, accused them of being behind that, and then what happens? All of a sudden, the Russians want... Donald Trump to be president of the United States. They're colluding with Trump to give him the election. And so they come up with this conspiracy behind closed doors. And I think this just evolved over time. You know, a lot of this is complicated to understand because it's just lie built upon lie upon lie. And that's why it's difficult to kind of compress all this information and make it simple. But they tried to tie Donald Trump to the Russians, the same people that hacked, they said, the DNC servers and released the Podesta emails. And the first thing they did was this fake Alpha Bank uh, uh, connection. And yet Alpha Bank says they were hacked and things were manipulated to make it look like there was a connection. And we know there was no connection. The FBI even admitted there was no connection. And now we're learning that... The Hillary Clinton campaign paid for this tech executive to illegally spy on the Trump campaign. And it continued after the election. Now, let's get into Watergate. Now, Watergate, that's back in May of 1972. And that's when members of Nixon's uh, committee to reelect the president, they called it uh, derisively as creep, right? So these members broke into the Democrat Democratic National Committee's Watergate headquarters, hence the name Watergate Scandal. And these people stole copies of top secret documents and bugged the office's phones. But the wiretap didn't work. So Nixon sent five burglars back on June 17th, the next month, back to the Watergate complex, to the DNC HQ, uh, to fix it, to make sure the phones were bugged. So Nixon is spying, trying to spy on his political opposition. But a security guard caught them. I believe they had taped, uh, you know, the door so that it wouldn't lock. So they put tape over uh, whatever the mechanism is there on the door. And the security guard saw it and then caught these burglars and called the police. They got caught red-handed. And then what really got Nixon was obstruction. He tried to impede the FBI investigation that would link him to giving the order to do this. But, you know, Nixon did not plant evidence. This was a, a plain and simple spy operation. It was wrong. It was unlawful. It was illegal. But he didn't plant evidence. Hillary Clinton planted evidence. 
The whole Steele dossier was planted evidence. She didn't just spy, which was illegal on its own. She went further. And that's what the Alpha Bank story is all about. It is a massive conspiracy, the likes of which I don't think we've ever seen in American history. Now, let's just take a moment to engage in some intelligent spitballing here. Because I want to bring this around to the 2020 election. Now, Hillary Clinton is one of the most corrupt politicians in American history. Now, back in 2000, I think it was, she's on the record at a donor meeting uh, claiming that she didn't like using emails um, essentially because it could be traced, it could be followed. And it then would follow as well that continuing in this trend of her enjoying living her public life of service uh, in anonymity so that people couldn't read what she was up to and find out about her corruption. Because let's face it, the Clintons are the Clinton crime family. They always have been a corrupt family. And so, you know, you enter an era after 2000 where email becomes the way of the world. It's the way we operate. You cannot avoid it or escape it. You have to use email. That's the predominant form of communication now. It's convenient and it's necessary. And so as you move forward, she becomes Secretary of State. She's got the Clinton Foundation. Of course, you know, when she left the White House with Bill Clinton, she tried to steal the furniture from the White House and before she had to return it. Uh, but they weren't even wealthy upon leaving office. But in the subsequent years that followed, they enriched themselves to the, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And it didn't just come from speech fees. It came from the Clinton Foundation or this global organization they had where they received the donations from the foreign entities, as we discussed, um, to, to, to influence uh, American politics and curry favor. And so the only reason that people would have to donate money to the Clintons and enrich them is because they had skin in the game in terms of politics and were in influential positions. And remember, you know, she tried to get the nomination and had that taken from her when Barack Obama uh, became the presidential nominee. And she waited her time. She, she was awarded with a secretary of state position. And while she was secretary of state, uh, she had more money than ever pouring into the Clinton Foundation. So she sets up this uh, private server so that people can't in the government have access to what she's doing on the side, abusing her position of power to see and identify the corruption. And, of course, we come to find out that this is the case. She set up the private server server in Chappaqua. And, well, she's got to follow the federal rules. And so when they subpoena her for those emails, and, and remember how ridiculous it was, too. She claimed, you know, she didn't understand what was confidential. She didn't know. I mean, just things that are totally unbelievable from a woman who has been in the White House with her husband and serving as Secretary of State, a life in politics that she wouldn't know in an email what was considered confidential or not. She didn't understand the rules. She understood perfectly what the rules were, but she didn't care because she was above the law. She was Hillary Clinton. And so she, I mean, think about this. She literally destroyed evidence, destroyed emails, so they could not be accessed 
by the federal government. That was a violation of the federal law. And then when it's discovered, because somebody leaked those emails during the 2016 campaign that were damning, that showed that the Democrat National Committee was doing everything in its power to defeat Bernie Sanders and coronate her as the presidential candidate. And those emails showed a lot of things. It, it showed the elitism of Hillary Clinton, who, who basically said in some of those emails, for example, that she couldn't relate to the middle class or, or whatever, the common man anymore. I mean, it was just bad all the way around. There was no way to spin that in a positive light. And this was a cover-up operation. I mean, for them to say the Russians hacked the DNC and they learned this in April and then for them to deny the FBI access to those servers to determine whether or not it was the Russians, it was a huge cover-up operation. And so then they tried to say and tie Trump to Russia. And those were false allegations brought before him. Against him, I should say. Trump had nothing to do with Russia. But they pinned the, the leaking of those emails, those Podesta emails and WikiLeaks, to Russia. And then they tried to tie Trump to Russia. None of it was ever true. And we've never gotten to the bottom of any of it. But we know about all this illegal activity and there have been no repercussions and no accountability. No one's paid the price for it. And then if we fast forward, I I mean, I think this was a distraction at first. I think it was a cover-up operation for Hillary Clinton. I mean, the spotlight was on her about what she had done. And they needed a story to distract. And Trump said it in 2016. This is a distraction from what Hillary Clinton has done. And so the media was consumed and obsessed with this new narrative that was false, that was fed to them, that it was Trump who had some connection to Russia and the Russians were trying to help him defeat Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. And so it took the spotlight off of her and put it on Trump. And I think this just continued It just rolled over after Trump defeated her in the election. And so the Steele dossier, I mean, yeah, they were engaged in some opposition research that was beyond opposition research because they were falsifying, inventing information, the Trump PP tape, for example, and all the rest. And they continue to use that and continue to spy on Trump throughout his presidency to oust him from office. But it always took the spotlight off of what the Democrats had done and their failures and their corruption. And I think that it just continued to be this case where they wanted to get rid of Donald Trump. And the more he fought back, the more they attacked. And like I've said, 2016 broke their brains. And so they literally lied for four years to try and undermine the will of the American people. And let me ask you this. Somebody who is willing to hire an outside tech executive to illegally surveil a presidential candidate and then continue that illegal surveillance after he's president of the United States, do you think that these same people would not interfere in the 2020 election to steal that election? 
These are totally amoral people. And just to go off here because it's on my mind, you know, this did not just begin with Hillary Clinton. You know, Obama spied on uh, James Rosen. That was a Fox News reporter back in 2010. He did the same. Barack Obama also spied on the AP, getting access to phone conversations, phone logs for these people. Absolutely illegal. That was Watergate, but there were no repercussions because the media and the elites in D.C. protected them. Nixon resigned. He was forced to resign for what he did. And remember, too, that Barack Obama with Fast and the Furious, the gun operation that resulted in the murder of, uh, of an American, I believe it was a, a, um, a, uh, a Border Patrol officer that was murdered as a result of that operation. And Barack Obama stepped in and prevented documents from being provided to Congress to investigate it. And Eric Holder just got off the hook. And so this has been going on for a very long time now. And so don't tell me that these same people who would invent these lies, the Steele dossier, to oust Donald Trump from office would not engage in stealing the 2020 election. And they did the same thing, the same tactics. What did they do when Trump said they've been tapping my, my phones? And by the way, I gotta give by the way, I've got to give Mark Levin credit, the radio host, because he was on top of this and was ridiculed from the beginning. He brought this to national attention. And they called this a conspiracy theory. They said it wasn't true, and that's what they do every single time. Same thing in 2020. They called it a conspiracy theory. They moved so fast, so fast without investigating everything. And and they they prevented. They obstructed any investigation of what happened. And what do we still hear about today? Even from Adam Kinzinger, who's such a weirdo out there in the Republican Party, still talking about January 6th. We've got to investigate all these people. It's a distraction, a distraction from what the Democrats have done. And that's what January 6th was always about. Okay, if these people are willing and have no problem lying about Donald Trump and going to all these feats to pay for illegal surveillance, paying for a fake dossier to accuse Donald Trump of being some Russian asset, Manchurian candidate in the United States of America as president. Don't tell me these same people would not engage in a false flag operation on January 6th to try and distract from what they did in the 2020 election. Because on that day, the Congress was supposed to discuss the evidence that they had seen and been presented about shenanigans in 2020. And January 6th very conveniently did what? The opposite of what we wanted. We wanted to have a debate about what happened and let the American people hear finally on a national stage in which they had to be confronted with it. They could not ignore it with the real evidence that the Democrats and the mainstream media just told us didn't exist. And lo and behold, on January 6th, we had this phony insurrection in which we know that the Democratic Party did everything they could, everything they could 
to allow this circumstance to take place, even opening doors for these protesters, allowing them into the building. And what did it do? It forced the Republicans to fold. There was no discussion. The Republicans and Donald Trump were demonized and vilified. And the pressure was so great that they just caved. That was the result of the January 6th fake insurrection. And so I think that honestly, the implications of what's going on with Hillary Clinton also also relate to what happened on January 6th and beyond. And this is what's so alarming to me. You have these relationships forming now between politicians, these tyrants, and private entities as well, and everyone else colluding to retain power. Give, send, go, by the way. In Canada, the truckers, remember GoFundMe tried to steal their money, and they were threatened with lawsuits, and they issued that money back to them. But but GoFundMe uh, was going to steal their money and donate it to charities of their choice. And so then Gibson Go stepped in, and that became the go-to for donating money to support the Canadian truckers. Now, in Canada, they have basically, the courts have said, you know, well, a bank, for example, froze assets, $1.2 million or something like that, and forbade them, tried to forbade, forbid Gibson Go from distributing this money to the truckers. And Gibson Go has basically given the double-barreled middle finger and said, no. No, we're going we're gonna to distribute the monies we see fit. But the Canadian government is stepping in and trying to prevent the money that has been lawfully provided via Give, Send, Go to support these truckers in their protest to prevent them from getting it and accessing it. Whether it's colluding with banks to freeze bank accounts, whether it's working with the police officers and forces around there to drag people out of their cars. And remember what the... Uh, what the, what the Democrats said when it came to Black Lives Matter, it was an American right to protest. That, uh, you know, the Boston Tea Party, I think, Don Lemon said, don't pretend like this isn't how the country was founded. You know, these people have a right to be doing this. And meanwhile, BLM, let, let me play this clip that I put together. I, I want you to hear this. Over the weekend, we saw thousands of people. Uh, it is not generally speaking unruly. People gather across the country to join peaceful protests against anti-black racism. How important is it for these protests to continue? It's critically important. How the protesters rule the streets. The National Guard, nowhere to be seen. The state police, nowhere to be seen. The local police, nowhere to be seen. The sheriff's department, nowhere to be seen. The protesters are the ones that feel like these streets are their streets. And where are we and these savages and all of that? This is how this country was started. The greatest movements that that we have seen in recent history in our country, but probably since the beginning, have been born out of protests. Protesting peacefully is necessary. It's, it's, um, it's American. Understanding the power of the people to take to the streets and force their government to, to become, to, to, to address what is wrong. People who are out there because they're upset about what's happening in their country. Canadians are sending the message that they will never tolerate injustice. 
two miles past that, you can see a fire going on there. That is cars that are on fire. Uh, protesters here. Um, I want you to know that I'm listening and that your government will always stand with you. It has to stop. The people of Ottawa don't deserve to be harassed in their own neighborhoods. They don't deserve to be confronted with the inherent violence of a swastika flying on a street corner or a Confederate flag or the insults and jeers just because they're wearing a mask. So, you know, the, the, the last thing you heard there was Trudeau that was condemning the Canadian protesters, but everything before that, you heard Trudeau totally supportive of Black Lives Matter and all of that, and, and you heard, you know, Don Lemon and, and, and the usual suspects there uh, talking about how, how wonderful it was for these protesters. You know, Kamala Harris, you know, oh, yeah, this is this, this is what's responsible for American greatness. Protesters taking to the streets, demanding that their government listen to them and change. And some of that, you know, because I'm actually I'm, I'm taking over for somebody on Tuesday for a uh, kind of a, a well a TV show. And so I'm putting together this clip, and the intention was to, to it'll be visual. But, you know, you, you could hear the fires going on, um, uh, everything like that, cars exploding. And you heard that one CNN reporter who was, who, was, who was saying that, you know, the police are nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. And yet in Canada, for these truckers that are peacefully protesting, they're not standing down. They're sitting in the riot police. They're putting snipers on buildings. They're dragging people out of their cars uh, as we speak, to stop this protest. And so it's not that protesting is good. It's only good if it serves the leftist cause of communism. And that's what this really comes down to. But when it's us protesting against discrimination, which is what these Canadians are doing, vaccine mandates, for example, and, and how about this? We just have a Super Bowl here in L.A. Nobody's wearing a mask. Um, you could get in if you were not vaccinated and yet Canada here and America is still trying to propose vaccine mandates. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It has nothing to do with anything except control. And I just wanted you to hear that clip because it's amazing that they would support these violent movements. And then you have the truckers that haven't committed any acts of violence and, um, oh, you know, the, that has to be condemned. That must be condemned. And that's the thing. And that's why I point out and go back to the Super Bowl. You've got 70,000 people not wearing masks and they're, they're, they're powerless. They can't do anything about it. Not only is there hypocrisy in the fact that these people weren't wearing masks, but also they didn't make any effort to put masks on these people's faces because they're a majority. And that's why I hope these Canadian truckers stand firm. But anyway, I just, you know, there have to be consequences. And that's what's so important going into these midterms. Um, these Democrats continue to behave this way, and we continue to, frankly, accept it because we feel like, I mean, this is the way it goes. We, we, we accept this notion that there's a political elite that is ruling over us and there's never anything is going to happen to them. I mean, Barack Obama surveilled James Rosen, surveilled the AP. He did not resign. There were no calls for his resignation. Hillary Clinton uh, planted evidence 
engaged in a illegal conspiracy theory to oust Donald Trump uh, to defeat him, and then and then that carried over in the election, and it was a coup attempt. It was treason. These people are all guilty of treason. Mark Elias, Michael Sussman, Barack Obama, and, and we don't even know many of these other names, but they're all guilty of treason. And that's the word that needs to be on our tongues, treason. That's what we've witnessed. And what is startling is that is becoming more and more clear that we're being decimated by a, a, well, somebody who has infiltrated the office of the president of the United States, an imposter, a president that was not duly elected. And, I mean, we've seen evidence from state after state that there was foul play. And yet, we still have Joe Biden in office. And... The truth is, just like the truth was back in 2016, when claims were made that the um, Trump campaign was being spied upon, they called that a conspiracy theory. Let's just go through this really, really briefly here. The Wuhan lab theory, that was called a conspiracy theory. We know that it originated in a Wuhan lab, the coronavirus. Uh, Trump-Russia collusion, that was called a... uh, well, well, when we said that the wires were tapped, that was a conspiracy theory. That's also been proven true. The Hunter Biden emails showing corruption between the Biden family and the Chinese government. That was called a conspiracy theory. That's been proven true. The Hunter Biden laptop is real. The 2020 election. They stole the election. Oh, that's a uh, baseless conspiracy theory. We know in our hearts and minds and souls, using our intellect and rational thought, that, it, that that's true. And we cannot begin to heal as a nation or move forward if there are not consequences for this. If these people do not go to jail and face the legal repercussions of their criminal activity and behavior. And that's where we have to go. As painful as it might be, we have to prosecute these people because if we don't do it, Nothing will change. Nothing will change. Not only will this nation be endangered by a weak military, a weak economy, inflation. And that's not even talked about enough, too, the inflation. Seven and a half percent. I mean, we're in trouble, folks. We are. We are. And our only recourse right now, peacefully, is to take back the House and the Senate. But if we take back the House and the Senate and we have people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and Adam Kinzinger types, we do not stand a chance. But we've got to be ready. we got to play ball. we got to play ball. And this is what's necessary. And there's some weird thing, you know, when, when an American citizen commits a crime, we have no problem no problem supporting the fact that that person is tried and prosecuted and goes to jail and faces the consequences. But for some reason, we feel this hesitation when it's the government, the politician. We've got to reject that. These people are not above us. In fact, these politicians, they swear a sacred oath to uh, serve in a constitutional role to protect and defend this nation. And they should be punished just as severely as anyone else for breaking the law. They are not exempted, exempted from paying the price 
if they commit illegal activities. They're just like you and me. They break the law, they go to jail. Doesn't matter if they're president, doesn't matter if they are congressmen and women, doesn't matter if they've served in office, it, it's irrelevant. Or in fact, it's extremely relevant because they actually are purporting to be, uh, you know, the greatest amongst us. And so we got to go after these people and we, we, we have to ensure because, th- look, it's the reason we have, uh, you know, laws and punishments for drunk drivers or anything else. Stealing, theft, whatever it is. A deterrent. If we, if we do not prosecute these people who go in and steal, if we do not prosecute murderers and send them to jail, well, what's the signal? It just proliferates more and more. And it's the same with these politicians. They have committed crimes. And, you know, the most important three words in the Declaration of Independence are we, the people. And the politicians are also included in the people. It's not we, the people, the citizens, and then the politicians are in a different class, and we've got to reject it. I mean, Fauci, all these people have to pay for their crimes, and crimes they have committed. Indeed. I mean, COVID itself, we've been lied to for two years. They shut down our economy, and that's what's insane about this Canadian stuff, and also the American government trying to condemn any protests. I mean, think about what Trudeau's saying about these truck drivers. These protesters, oh, they're interfering with commerce. This is a guy who shut down the economy for two years, who destroyed lives. They shut down commerce completely, except for favorable exemptions to the big box retailers and the big Democrat donors in these big major corporations that agree to do their bidding. And these protesters, I mean, I'm sorry. Was BLM not interfering with commerce when they did two, over $2 billion worth of damage around this country? Burning buildings, rioting, looting, etc.? There was no price paid for that. There's no discussion or condemnation about that. They got away scot-free. The Democratic Party raised funds. Kamala Harris promoted bailing out these people from prison. And now we want to say, hey... We want to end discrimination. We want our lives back. And we're considered domestic terrorists. We're accused of, of interfering with the market, of hurting American citizens. I don't think so. You know, there has to be an element of pain felt by both politicians and maybe other people, fellow citizens, to get what is just and right, which is our constitutional rights back. But anyway, this is Drew Allen. God bless you all, and until next time.